Welcome to the Northbound Wealth Podcast. All opinions expressed by me, my co-hosts, or my guests are solely our own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment, tax, or legal advice, or as a solicitation to offer or buy any securities. Clients of Northbound Wealth Management, LLC may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Today is October 3rd, 2022. My name is Brent Foster, the podcast host and founder CEO of Northbound Wealth Management. I want to welcome you to our weekly market insights. The US and UK, which stands for United Kingdom, see financial turbulence. Rising recession fears and uncertainty in the bond and currency market sent stocks to new 2022 lows last week. The Dow Jones Industrial Average declined 2.92%, while the S&P 500 slumped 2.91%. The NASDAQ Composite Index fell 2.69%. The MSCI EFA Index, which tracks developed overseas stock markets, lost 1.94%. So that means the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed out last week at 28,725 and change. Year-to-date, that's down 20.95%. The NASDAQ closed at 10,575, which is down 32.4% year-to-date. MSCI EFA index closed at 1,655, which means it's down 29.14% for the year. And at the S&P 500 closed at 3,585, which closes out the year at down 24.77%. The 10-year treasury note, closed at 3.83%, which is up 14 basis points uh, for the week. And it's up 2.31% for the year. So markets are just not looking very good. They're not cooperating, whether you're in the stock market or the bond market. This is one of the worst years actually for the bond market uh, in history. Uh, It's horrible. Um, So there's really no place to hide at the moment. But um, there are opportunities out there to look at getting long, but we got to be kind of careful. got to understand the technicals. So stay tuned for the uh, technical analysis spotlight. So a tumultuous week, the U.S. stocks were under pressure all week due to recession concerns and unsettled trading in the bond and currency markets. The stress followed economic steps out of the U.K. during the previous week. The Bank of England raised interest rates and its prime minister, announced unfunded tax cuts that the markets interpreted as inflationary. U.S. bond yields rose early next week, sending stocks lower until Wednesday's rally following the news that the BOE would buy U.K. government bonds. U.S. stocks resumed their descent the following two days to close out a disappointing week, month, and third quarter. So I think it's the third uh, consecutive negative quarter that we've had in equity performance this year. So 2022 is just a doozy. Uh, the Bank of England acts. So global bond and currency markets, as you know, they've been volatile recent, recently due to global central bankers raising interest rates to combat inflation. Developments in the UK took center stage last week when the BOE announced it would be buying long-dated UK government bonds. Upending the financial markets was the previous week's announcement of tax cuts by the country's new prime minister, a step many investors viewed as counterproductive to the BOE's inflation-fighting efforts. 
the BOE decision uh, to begin temporary purchases of government bonds was well received by capital markets, sending UK bond yields lower and boosting UK stock prices in the in the immediate aftermath of that. So it's really bifurcated. Very interesting how they're going at this from a fiscal and uh, monetary perspective. Um, let's see. This week, key economic data. Monday, the Institute for Supply uh, management, manufacturing index, Tuesday, factory orders, job openings and labor turnover, JOLT survey, Wednesday, uh, the ADP uh, employment report, Institute for Supply Chain Management Services Index, Thursday, jobless claims, Friday, employment situation updates. So there's a lot going on. Um, it just, how does it look? And uh, it's really confusing to people, which is further confirmation that we're in a bear market. This week, companies reporting earnings. On Wednesday, Lamb Weston. Thursday, Constellation Brands, McCormick and Company, and ConAgra Brands. That's it for the week, so stay tuned for a healthy tax tip. So with shared custody, taxes can get complicated. If you have a legal agreement with your child's other parent regarding custody, you likely have questions about claiming the child on your tax return and what credits, if any, for which you are eligible. It may help if you research the child tax credit as well. The parent who claimed the child tax credit for a qualifying child the previous year may have received the advanced child tax credit payments the following year. That means that a eligible parent who did not receive the advance payments for the qualifying child will be able to claim the full amount of the child tax credit for that child on a 2022 tax return, even if the other parent received advanced child tax credit payments. As a reminder, this information is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized advice on taxes. We suggest that you discuss your specific tax issues with a qualified tax professional. And again, this tip was adapted from the irs.gov website. All right, on to other educational and informational items. Stay tuned. I've got another note from JP Morgan's Marco Klonovic uh, and Bram Kaplan, CFA and PhDs uh, from JP Morgan. And uh, I've been following and reading Klonovic's notes for years and years and years. So, my time at JP Morgan, as well as my time at other firms in, in my own firm. Uh, he's been a thought leader in many ways. So uh, he just released a note today that I thought was interesting. And uh, Scott Wapner covered it on CNBC today to uh, share with you what his note was uh, to my client base and listeners of the Northbound Wealth podcast. He, he says, this year we've been above consensus positive. So he's been a bull. Uh, our positive outlook was based on an assumption that the central banks will not make a grave policy error, that the war in Europe will de-escalate over the course of the fall or winter season, resulting in only a mild recession in Europe, and that growth in Asia will accelerate significantly in the second half of this year. Importantly, we also observed near record low positioning of fast money investors, including hedge funds, systematic investors which would together warrant a positive market outcome absent a global recession. And while we still think that Asian growth will be supportive of the global cycle and positioning provides a floor to the market, we are increasingly worried about central banks making a policy error 
and of new geopolitical tail risks following the dis destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines. As an aside, that was a big deal. Um, with regard to central banks, since 2018, we've seen several errors that increase macroeconomic volatility. Q4 2018 tightening into a manufacturing recession, 2021 continued easing into the crypto NFT innovation bubble. And now again in 2022 with unprecedented tightening into a slowing economy and the war. A potential hawkish mistake followed after a dovish mistakes makes for two mistakes rather than canceling them out. Given the recent escalation and hawkish rhetoric, the likelihood of central banks committing a policy mistake with negative global consequences has increased. And this started showing in various cracks in the FX, which FX is the, the futures and rates markets. Even if a mistake is avoided, a delay will likely be introduced for the global market and economic recovery. On the war in Europe, we remained optimistic and expected Europe to act as a mediator and in its own economic political self-interest. The destruction of the Nord Stream pipelines, okay, this week, however, is an event that significantly increases tail risks and makes it very difficult to de-escalate near term. The ramifications of this event are hard to fully assess, like military, economic, and political, both in the US and Europe, but many believe that the current situation is similar to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Given these developments, a second assumption behind our positive view is now at risk, which is the de-escalation we expected this year is pushed out in time. Most of the risks in 2022 are a result of policies, escalation of geopolitical tensions and violence, mismanagement of the energy crisis, damaging instead of nurturing of global trade relationships and supply chains, fanning internal political divisions and more. It all amounts to throwing rocks in glass houses. Instead, the world needs leadership to guide us through these difficult times with a calm and steady hand. The most recent increase of geopolitical and monetary policy risks puts our 2022 price targets at risk. While we remain above consensus positive, these targets may not be realized until 2023 or when the above risks ease. Ease. An additional technical near-term comment, we note that month-end portfolio rebalances and expiration of quarterly option strategies should act in support of the market today. So um, that I thought was a well-written, well-articulated note about where we are at in the state of the economy. And uh, he cited a lot of great perspectives that I think the majority of us share. Uh, but uh, what a what a great note. Good job, Marco. And I wanted you guys to hear that because uh, he he does influence uh, the the markets, the economy and political leaders, leaders uh, in business and economics. Uh, and so uh, he and his team, frankly, over at JP Morgan and JP Morgan Asset Management and JP Morgan Research. So uh, great stuff. Good job. And um, I wanted to share that note because you'll see some differences in price targets and the repricing of stock prices, meaning price targets of, let's say, for example, Amazon and Apple and Microsoft and Google or Alphabet and, you know, Meta and some of this other stuff going on. Uh, you'll see some repricing. Doesn't mean that it's the end 
of the market at all. It means there's opportunities out there. Uh, we just might have to extend our, our timeframes out a bit longer than we, we expect, given there's so many headwinds and so many risks that are kind of percolating up. But again, I love what he said there. If you guys can listen to it, I repeated it actually. If you get any any ease in any of the risks above, that's a catalyst to help the market uh, turn the corner and become more favorable and more, more positive. So uh, typically you kind of want to go in when the building is burning down and look at opportunities to be buying instead of selling when the, burn, when the, when the building's burning down. That's not the time to sell out. So uh, be the contrarian. Uh, understand that uh, it's an opportunity when things are bad and when things are really, really good and everybody's complacent, that's the time to maybe start looking to uh, reduce risk. This is JP Morgan's equity research, uh, JP Morgan Securities, uh, published as of September 29, 2022. Samik Chatterjee, CFA, he does a great job analyzing equities if, if anybody wants to follow him, Samik Chatterjee. And what we're going to do is go over what his latest note is on Apple. So stay tuned. I think every week what I'll do is start highlighting a stock and what analysts are saying about it. And this week, why not start off with one of the best companies in the world, one of the largest companies in the world, one of the most widely held and least sold companies in the world. And that would be Apple. So Let's just take a look at this uh, note put out by JP Morgan. And uh, their analyst says, we rate Apple shares overweight. So they've got an overweight rating uh, with a price target of $200. And they attribute that to their favorable outlook on iPhone and service revenues relative to investor expectations. Catalyst to accelerate revenue growth and upside risk to uh, our relative base forecast of about 10% earnings CAGR. <clears throat> we see upside in several aspects of the business as well as financials that remain underappreciated by investors, namely the transformation of the company to services, growth in the installed base, technology leadership, and optionality around capital deployment, all of which together lead us to expect double-digit earnings growth and a modest re-rating for the shares. Valuations. So our December 22 uh, price target of $200 is based on a PE multiple of about 30 times on uh, CY23, which is current year 2023 earnings estimates of $6.72 a share. Apple shares have traded closer to 30, uh, 30x price to earnings or PE following the re-rating of the account of services growth, as well as expectations of better execution on the product cycle, which we expect to be a multiple investors are willing to return to attributing to the shares with beats driven by more sustainable secular drivers in iPhone and services with a larger installed base, higher share in 5G smartphones and better service monetization altogether turning out to be a strategic advantage for the company. So uh, risks to the rating and the price target. So the industry downside risks are deceleration or contraction in the handset and smartphone market could uh, be faster than expected. Uh, economic conditions or shifting consumer demand could cause greater than expected deceleration or contraction in the handset and smartphone markets. 
This would negatively impact Apple's prospects for growth and the shares may fail to achieve our price target as a result. Increase in competitive pressures in international markets. Apple is increasingly participating in international markets such as China and India, where local players, which are better suited, could leverage their position and pull on levers such as pricing to make the more make them more competitive. In addition, tariffs enacted by local governments may further hurt Apple's ability to compete effectively in the international markets. Company-specific downside risks are investments in new business strategies and acquisitions could be fruitless. Apple has historically invested in new business strategies and acquisitions. As such, successes in these investments has low visibility at this time and could lead to greater than expected liabilities and expense. Additionally, new investments could have a negative impact on current operations by distracting management. Key man risk around departure of chief executive officer. While risks related to the departure of management executives appear considerably lower relative to the past. We believe the execution on strategic priorities under CEO Tim Cook's leadership still presents modest risk to the share price, although we see a strong group of executives to support business performance without disruptions. Uh, we went over Apple. Let's go over Amazon. Uh, what JP Morgan says about them as far as analysis. Their investment thesis is we believe Amazon is well positioned as the market leader in e-commerce and public cloud. Where the secular shifts remain early, U.S. e-commerce represents about 20% of adjusted retail sales, and we estimate about 15% of workloads are in the cloud today. We believe Amazon's flexibility in pushing first-party versus third-party inventory and its prime offering both serve as major advantages in its uh, retail business and its multi-year head start in the cloud has led to about a 40% plus AWS, which is Amazon Web Services global market share. Amazon is also starting to show more profit with its high growing AWS and advertising revenue streams. Also, it's most profitable. Valuations. We are establishing a December 2023 price target of $185 based on our SOP. We believe this methodology appropriately attributes value to Amazon's large, fast-growing, and profitable AWS segment. We apply a 1.2 multiple on the 2024 earnings retail GMV of 85, $852 billion. So gross market value of $852 billion, which we believe is justified as large retailer pure Walmart trades at about 0.25 times 24 gross market value, and Amazon has a meaningfully higher growth profile. We apply a 15 times multiple on our 2024 uh, EAWS EBITDA of 58 billion, which equates to a 6.75 times our 2024 earnings uh, AWS revenue of 128 billion. So risks to the rating and price target downside risks include number one, revenue growth fails to reaccelerate amidst slowing discretionary spending and macro headwinds. Number two, margin risk around supply chain deleveraging, lower labor productivity and inflationary costs. Number three, elevated labor and supply chain costs. Number four, AWS revenue decelerates faster than expected and or AWS margins compress from increased competition. Number five, Amazon struggles to gain further share of U.S. e-commerce with more competition from Shopify and B&M retailers. 
for example, like Walmart, Target, Costco. Number six, increased US and EU, which is European Union regulatory and antitrust scrutiny could be a multi-year long overhang. And number seven, less valuation support relative to other mega caps such as Facebook, which is Meta, Google, and Apple. So uh, an interesting note published on September 29th, uh, 2022 as an update. And um, what's apparent to me is the uh, re-ratings of equities pushing out price targets from 2022 to 2023 and um, citing uh, inflationary risks, among other things. So uh, that's why you're seeing the, uh, the S&P 500 trading around 3641 and retesting and breaking through some of the June lows. Um, if we break 3500, we will likely see a decline uh, to retest the 3,300 level, uh, somewhere above the 3,000 level, which is um, above the 2020 uh, March lows. So that would be probably, in our anticipation, a good entry point for people with sitting with cash on the sideline who may want to get long the equity markets. But uh, Apple and Amazon are both off their all-time highs by quite a bit, and it might be a good time if you don't own those and you're looking for opportunities of owning solid businesses, solid companies with good cash flows and good future prospects to maybe be looking at Apple and Amazon. Uh, Google is another one, but I'll cover that one here in the next week. Maybe Tesla, maybe Microsoft, maybe some Home Depot. I don't know. We're just going to have a whole lot of fun looking at some of what, not only what JP Morgan analysts say, but maybe some of what some of the other analysts say that are out there about certain companies that are, uh, I don't know, interesting buys are interesting to look at. Um, anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed this segment uh, along. So Apple and Amazon, along with other information about just the news of the markets, other insights. Thanks. So the third stock we're going to cover is Alphabet or Google. And uh, JP Morgan analyst Doug and Muth wrote this uh, little brief update, which I happen to agree with the last uh, for his take on Amazon and Google. Uh, and let's go over that. Uh, his investment thesis on Google, we believe Alphabet's fundamentals are strong and that the company will remain a primary beneficiary of the secular shift to online spending. Google remains focused on innovation across its advertising businesses, and we continue to believe there's a meaningful runway across search and YouTube ads as ROI improves and TV dollars shift more online. ROI is return on investment. Non-ad businesses such as cloud and YouTube subscription services have strong momentum, and companies with other bets, including Waymo and Verily provide option value. We remain confident in the company's ability to innovate for the long term and generate strong earnings power. So the valuations, um, Google is uh, trading down as well as Amazon and Apple uh, valuations. We are establishing a December 2023 price target of $140 unchanged from prior December 2022 price target of $140 based on our 21 times our 2000 uh, 24 earnings gap earnings per share or EPS of $6.68, which X cash equates to about 18 times our 24 earnings gap EPS, uh, X other bets of 
$7.06. We believe Alphabet shares should trade at a premium to the S&P 500 as Alphabet maintains a dominant uh, position in the global online ad industry with about a third of the market share. And it is one of the few companies in the S&P 500 with DD revenue and EPS growth off of a very large base. Risks to the rating and price target. Downside risk includes number one, potential for a return to heavy investment spending and margin compression. Two, continued competition for engineering talent. Three, regulatory scrutiny resulting to, in meaningful change to operations or limiting innovation. And four, growth slowing more than anticipated with the next major revenue drivers, including cloud hardware and Waymo not materializing as expected. So there's the quick take on the uh, stock or company of Alphabet, Google. Uh, it's the parent of Google, so the ticker symbol would be G-O-O-G or G-O-O-G-L. Check this out, they're back again. Fall is officially here and around the country. Freshmen and upperclassmen are now comfortably settled into another year of academic enrichment or beer pong or both. Meanwhile, a handful of university officials have their eyes on something else, the stock market. U.S. college endowments are having their worst year since the global financial crisis, largely thanks to this year's double-digit losses on American equity markets. The pools of money drawn from wealthy alumni and other donors help pay for staff salaries, scholarships, and maintain those creaky neo-Gothic buildings. They became investment powerhouses in the last decade, expanding their war chests of schools by billions of dollars with winning bets on equities, hedge funds, and private equity. The rewards were tremendous, but the widened exposure of university endowments to markets subjects them to volatility in exchange for getting richer. Not a bad deal except in a down year, and no one needs to be reminded this is a very, very down year. That's what we're looking at here today how the modern university endowment came to be and where it's going in today's stormy economic seas, navigating those waters make Pequod's journey in Melville's Moby Dick seem like a day at the beach. So grab your notebook, also your red solo cup if that's your post-secondary life preference and read on. Keeping it old school, <clears throat> colleges and universities have received endowments. In the broadest sense, basically any monetary assistance or contribution of value to support their finances in some form or another, as far back as antiquity, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius endowed four chairs in philosophy at schools in Athens in the year 176 and similar positions would spread throughout the empire. Aurelius also made time for a side gig as a great Stoic philosopher guaranteeing his immortality in two academic subjects, history and philosophy. Take that, Julius Caesar. Fast forward several centuries and wealthy private citizens are getting in on the action. For 33 years, beginning in 1669, Isaac Newton was the second person to hold the Lucasian Chair of Mathematics at Cambridge, founded by the clergyman and politician Henry Lucas. Over 300 years later, the post would be held by groundbreaking physicist Stephen Hawking. Birth of a new school. Compared to modern university endowments, these early support measures were pretty simple. Benefactor gives money or useful goods and the school spends or uses them. End of transaction. But everything changed in the 19th and 20th centuries. First, there was the emergence of American wealth. 
As the U.S. industrialized, the country produced a then unthinkable number of millionaires and multimillionaires, many of them like Benjamin Duke, Leland Stanford, Andrew Carnegie, John D. Rockefeller became philanthropists. Much of it went to higher ed. Beginning in 1870 and 1900, the aggregate endowment of post-secondary institutions in the U.S. multiplied 10 times to 195 million, according to Bruce Kimball, Emeritus Professor of Education Studies at Ohio State. In 1867, one of the era's most prominent philanthropists, Ezra Cornell, founded a new Ivy League school with 500,000 of his own money or enough to buy a single family home in 2022. Overlapping with this period was the Harvard presidency of Charles W. Eliot from 1869 to 1909. He still remains the school's longest serving president and has a professorship named after him that's currently held by economist Larry Summers, another former president. Eliot transformed Harvard into a modern research institution and played a major role in advocating for the idea that universities should build up permanently invested funds that yield income. He treated fundraising like business networking and dismissed Yale's then strategy of getting donors to fund buildings, noting they only get uh, out of fashion and decay. Instead, Elliot hit up donors for cash and opened the school's investments up uh, to instruments beyond traditional mortgages and bonds. While his bullishness first drew skepticism, Elliot's mentality to spread to uh, spread to other universities, which also became more aggressive investors. Then in the 1980s, things went full-blown Wall Street. Private equity universities. David Swenson, a lot of you have probably heard of him, a Yale PhD in, in economics who worked at the flashy investment bank Solomon Brothers, was first approached by his alma mater to take a job. Instead of a per professorship, Yale asked the 31-year-old if he wanted to run its $1.3 billion endowment, and he accepted and took a pay cut in the size of the Sterling Memorial Library. Swenson dumped the classic 60-40 stock and bond portfolio investment approach that almost that most university endowments had comfortably settled into. He put the endowment money into hedge funds, venture capital, private equity. The results speak for themselves. When Swenson passed away from cancer last year, Yale's endowment was $31.2 billion. The Yale Investment Office produced an average annual returns of 12.4% over the last three decades of his leadership, better than any other school, and now contributes over a third of the school's budget. Swenson's strategy became known as the Yale model, which several other schools imitated by hiring his protégés. Campus insecurity. Swenson was succeeded by Matt Mendelson, the man he put in charge of leading Yale's endowments venture capital portfolio. When Mendelson joined in 07, Yale's private equity and venture capital funds accounted for less than 20% of the endowment. And by 2021, it was almost 40%. Mendelssohn joined at the tail end of a decade-long bull market run when equities soared and venture capital funding took flight thanks to low interest rates. School financial offices took off with them, especially in 2021 when markets had a barn burner year. In the 12 months through June 30th, 2021, Yale's endowment posted a 40% investment return, earning $12.1 billion. The return at Washington University and St. Louis endowment was 65%, boosted by timely co-investment in vaccine developer Moderna. Michigan State's endowment returned 41% with forward-thinking tech-like blockchain investments among its portfolio. 
The endowment at Bowdoin College in Maine returned 57%, growing to $2.7 billion. Tennessee's Vanderbilt University endowment also returned 57%. So the golden era, as you and your portfolio know all too well, came to an, an unceremonious end this year. University endowments lost a median of 10.2% for the 12 months through June 2022. So according to Wilshire Trust Universe Comparison Service, that's the worst performance since the 2008 global financial crisis. However, there are, for the literature measures at hand, silver linings to this metaphorical cloud or the economist students an upside. The largest endowments, those with 500 million or more in assets, have performed considerably better this year, posting a slim gain of 0.9%. That's mostly because they tend to have more investments in private equity funds, which have suffered far less this year than stocks. In both cases, the overall numbers of those exclusive to large endowments outperformed the S&P 500, which fell 12% in the same 12-month period. The Wilshire Trust data is not broken down by individual schools, which typically release results in the fall. That's not to say things are fantastic. According to Bloomberg News, Universities typically require a 7% annual gain to match increases in spending on financial aid and faculty salaries. Plus, there's an inflation showing no mercy on the price of eggs and cheese that go into cafeteria omelets. Other than investing in cash, which obviously is not the answer, the second quarter was literally one of the worst quarters for investing, Mike Rush, a Will Shire vice president, told Bloomberg Endowments have this prudent diversifier into alternatives that helped out at least the relative returns during the second quarter. That's a fancy way of saying, well, at least right now it looks like it's helped. So a challenger appears for decades. Harvard has laid claim to the title of the largest university endowment in part because it was arguably the first to take modern investing tactics seriously, giving it years lead time over other schools. And that finally may be about to change. The University of Texas system has a unique investment in its portfolio that has been especially enriching this year. It's called oil. Wow, oil. U of T has built up 2.1 million acres of land in the Permian Basin, which it leases to over 200 oil drillers, including Continental Resources and ConocoPhillips, that also pay royalties. The school makes $6 million a day off the land and is on track to set a record for annual revenue this year as oil prices have spent much of the year over $100 a barrel. Man, I guess maybe tech U of T can buy, uh, build another stadium or add more programs to the university. Jeez. The University of Texas has a cash windfall even uh, when everyone is looking at a potential cash crunch. William Goatsman, a professor of finance at Yale, uh, says, which he saw his endowment leapfrogged by Texas last year, told Bloomberg News. So Bank of America analysts last week predicted that oil prices, which have come down in recent weeks, will return to over $100 a barrel in 2023. That's actually what JP Morgan says will happen as well, that by the end of the year, we'll be back up over 100 for oil prices. That would likely put more wind in the sails of the Texas system, which had a $42.9 billion endowment compared with Harvard's $53.2 billion in June of 2021. The latter is expected to post losses this year, and the extent of Texas gains would make things awfully close. So it does pay to be a winner. The mega endowments that weathered this year's downturn better than others do pay a price. In 2017, 
Congress imposed a 1.4% tax on the investment returns of private colleges and universities with more than 500 students and 500,000 in endowment assets per pupil. The tax raises an estimated $200 million a year. And besides Yale, Stanford, and Harvard will impact Brown University and University of Chicago, uh, Vassar College, Wesleyan University, and Colby College. This tax takes money directly away from teaching, research, student financial aid, and support services, and countless other mission-focused activities, Ted Mitchell, the American Council on Education president, wrote to congressional leaders. Not everyone is sympathetic. Critics point out that college tuition has increased faster than inflation rising 28% at public institutions and 19% at private nonprofit institutions between 2008 and 2019, according to data from the National Center of Education Statistics. Even in this year of incredible inflation, those are hefty hikes that have most students looking for a private benefactor. Man, that was a mouthful. I Hopefully that was uh, insightful. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed sharing it with you and check out The Daily Upside. Hey, this is Brent Foster and this is right up there with the stock market and other things. We got to do this. We got to. This is the, uh, I'm happy to, to say this because this dude is a slugger and he's a clean slugger at that. He's also a Yankee. And so uh, just got a report just the other day, uh, New York Yankee star Aaron Judge hit his 61st home run, tying Roger Maris's American League record. So um, there's a, a good article on ESPN.com. Uh, Marley Rivera wrote it. And uh, here we go. It took Maris until October 1st, the final game of the 1961 season, to hit his 61st, which broke Babe Ruth's single season mark of 60 home runs set in 1927. Aaron Judge did it on September 28th in game number 155 for New York in 2022. A day after the Yankees clinched the American League East title, Judge batting leadoff as the designator hitter took Toronto's Tim Miza deep in the seventh inning with a runner on base. Judge, who walked in his first at bat, popped out in his second and grounded out in his third had gone seven games without a home run since managing a, a, a solo shot during New York's 6-0 homestand. He and the Yankees then headed to Toronto looking to make history at Rogers Center. He went one for three with a single in the series opener Monday and walked four times in Tuesday's division clincher before ultimately launching the historic shot Wednesday in the Yankees' 8-3 victory. When he finished rounding the bases, his thrilled teammates had left the dugout to greet him. Here's what he said. It's an incredible honor getting a chance to be associated with one of the, the Yankees greats, one of baseball's greats. Words can't describe it. Um, that's uh, the thing that's so special about the Yankees organization. Uh, it's all the guys that came before us and kind of paved the way, played the game the right way, did the right things the right way, uh, and did a lot of great things in the game. And getting a chance to be mentioned with those guys now is, I can't even describe it, an incredible honor. That's for sure. So home play umpire Brian Onora, after the game, congratulated Judge just out the Yankees dugout, handed him the ball, the lineup card. Judge said that uh, when he hit the ball, he wasn't sure if it would be a homer or an out, but once it got over the fence, he, he felt relief knowing the Yankees were in the lead as a result. Uh, getting a chance to tie Roger Maris, Judge said, 
you you dream about that kind of stuff. It's unreal. So the seven-game homerless drought was a rare case for the select few who've reached such home run heights of the previous seven instances in which players hit 61 home runs. Four had reached that mark next the next game after hitting 60 and none went more than three games to reach that milestone judge finally got there in the series finale with Roger Maris jr. And judge's mother, Patty sitting front row on top of the Yankees dugout. And now the only players in major league baseball history with more home runs in a season are Barry bonds with 73 Mark McGuire, 70 and 65 and Sammy Sosa with 66, 64 and 63 all of whom accomplished theirs during the steroid era, 1998 to 2001. It felt like we were the only ones there. It just, it was just a really good moment of togetherness, Yankee starter Garrett Cole said, describing the celebration. We're all so proud of him, and you know how hard he works. He wants to keep it low key, but boy, does he deserve it. Maris Jr. confirmed in a post-game news conference that he will travel back to Yankee Stadium this week as Judge swings for number 62. I don't think it's going to take very long, he said. I think he's loose. I think uh, the party last night, the celebration loosened him up. You can tell that he's back and he's uh, ready to go now. Judge, uh, his 2022 tear has been done with zero evidence of performance-enhancing drugs used by the Yankee slugger, which manager Aaron Boone believes puts the all-star outfielder's numbers beyond those recorded by the others. I think it puts him a notch above. It's uh, I got to believe that it's right there with some of the best, very short lists of all-time seasons ever. I, I go back to the context of the season, and the more I look at it and dive into it, it's got to be uh, one of the all-time great seasons. Maris Jr. Uh, concurred uh, and, and went a step further. He said, uh, Judge should be revered for being the actual season, uh, single season home run champ. I mean, that's really who he is if he hits 62. And I think that's what needs to happen. I think baseball needs to look at the records and I think baseball should do something. He said at one point, judge uh, judges toward home run pace matched that of bonds in 2001 in his record setting season, but with less than two weeks left of games, it will be It'll take a formidable surge for him to now approach that mark. Maris's 61st is considered by many to be the clean home run record. Judge, a Northern California native who's called Bonds, the greatest hitter of all time, does not devalue Bonds' accomplishments. That's the record, uh, said Judge, who graduated from Linden High School in the San Joaquin Valley, about an hour and a half east of San Francisco Bay. I watched him do it. I stayed up late watching him do it. That's the record. No one can take that from him. Bonds, for his part, said over the weekend that he could see Judge going on a home run streak after connecting on his 61st. Trying to get to that 61st is the hardest one. Bonds said on a K-Rod cast on ESPN2 during Sunday Night Baseball. Trying to get that one, once he gets it, 62 that is, he'll probably... Uh, go on to hit five or six more after that. But trying to get there, that's the hardest one. That 61 is going to be the hardest. It's a big moment on 61. So there you go. Th this article goes on to talk more and more about the history. Uh, there's a lot of really cool uh, 
quotes and cites in here talking about Lou Gehrig in 1934, Mickey Mantle in 1956, and some of the greats. Uh, this, this cat we're getting to see in the modern era, and um, it's just fascinating to see, and it doesn't happen very often. So tune in, check it out, even though um, I don't like the Yankees. I'm an Oakland A's fan. So there's some bad blood between the A's and the Yankees. Uh, and the Sox and uh, the American League. It's just uh, it's just fun to watch somebody do something like that. And I hope he gets 62. According to Fox Business, an article published on September 30th, uh, Hurricane Ian victims in Florida qualify for tax relief, the IRS says. If you guys don't know, I don't know how you wouldn't know, but uh, Florida is basically underwater and there's been a lot of devastation down there. We've got a lot of clients down and that have that have places in Florida. And so our prayer, thoughts and prayers go out to them. But the uh, the Internal Revenue Service announced Thursday that victims of Hurricane Ian in Florida qualify for tax relief. Those impacted by Ian have until February 15, 2023 to file various federal, individual, and business tax returns and make payments. The agency said in its offering uh, relief to any area that is designated by the uh, FEMA organization and that the current list of eligible localities is available on its irs.gov disaster relief page. Individuals in households that reside or have a business anywhere in the state of Florida qualify for tax relief. The tax relief postpones various tax filing and payment deadlines that occurred starting on September 23rd. And as a result, affected parties will have until Friday, uh, uh, excuse me, will have until that February date to file returns and pay any taxes that were due during this period. Those who had a valid extension to file their 2021 return due to run out on October 17th of this year, will now have until February 15th, 2023. However, because tax payments related to these 2021 returns are due, or <clears throat> however, because tax payments related to these 2021 returns were due on April 18th, those payments are not eligible for the relief. The February deadline also applies to quarterly estimated income tax payments due on January 17th and the quarterly payroll and excise tax returns normally due on October 31st. Businesses with original uh, or extended due date also have the additional time, including among others, calendar year corporations whose 2021 extensions run out on October 17th. Tax exempt organizations have additional time too, including for 2021 calendar year returns with extensions due to run out on November 15th. The IRS noted that penalties on payroll and excise tax deposits due on or after September 23rd or before October 10th will be abated as long as the deposits were made by uh, October 10th. It said that the disaster assistance and emergency relief for individuals and businesses page has additional details on returns, payments, and tax-related actions that qualify for extensions. The IRS automatically provides filing and penalty relief to any taxpayer with an IRS address of record located in the disaster area. Taxpayers do not need to contact the agency to get relief. However, if an affected taxpayer receives a late filing or late payment penalty notice from the IRS that has an original or extended filing, payment or deposit due date falling within the post 
postponement period, the taxpayer should call the number on the notice to have the penalty abated, the IRS said in a release. The IRS said it would also work with any taxpayer who lives outside the disaster area, um, but there, uh, but whose records necessary. Uh, the IRS said it would work with any taxpayer who lives outside the disaster area, but whose records uh, records ne necessary. Oh, the IRS said it would also work with the uh, any tax. The IRS said it would also work with any taxpayer who lives outside the disaster area whose records uh, necessarily meet the deadline occurring uh, during postponement period are located in the affected area, including workers assisting the relief activities who are affiliated with a recognized government or philanthropic organizations. Those individuals need to contact the IRS at 866-562-5227. The IRS concluded that individuals and businesses in a federally declared disaster area who suffered an uninsured or unreimbursed disaster-related losses can choose to claim them on either the return for the year the loss occurred or on the return for the prior year. For any return claiming a loss, people should be sure to write the FEMA declaration number DR-4673-FL on their forms. Thank you for listening to the Northbound Wealth Management Weekly Market Insights with your host, Brent Foster, founder and CEO of Northbound Wealth Management. Until next week, have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon.